So we're going to talk about something today. I want to spend about 20, 25 minutes to be precise for some reminding you and for others telling you for the first time that God loves you and God wants to have a relationship with you. And this is a message that you guys hear all the time, right? God loves you. God loves the cockroach in your cabinet. God loves the this. God loves the... But this is very different. I want us to not think about this sermon as we always think about God loves you sermons. But I want us to really shift our perspective and have an understanding that God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. He knows exactly what you did last night. He knows how you spoke with your wife. He knows what you did those few years ago that you can't seem to get out of your head. And yet, God loves you. Amen? So, love is such a powerful thing, right? We say, I love you to so many things and so many people. Husbands and wives, we say, I love you. It's such a weighty thing to say. And I truly feel like you can't believe someone when they say, I love you, unless you really know their nature, right? Unless you spend time understanding their nature, then you can understand their character. You understand what they do, how they behave, how they react. So I want to spend some time going into the scriptures to see the nature of God. Because once you really understand the nature of God, you will truly believe that he really, really loves you. Amen? So the Bible teaches us that God is an eternal spiritual being. As long as he has been around, he always was. Turn with me to John chapter 1, from 1 to 3. It says, before anything else existed, there was Christ with God. He has always been alive and is himself God. So this God is not like us. He was never created. He was never destroyed. He can never be destroyed. He always was. Before the foundation of this world, God is. Before there was space and time, before you and I came to be, God always was. And there was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. So whenever you have your quiet time, I encourage you to read chapter 3. This is a story where Moses had just left Egypt. He's in the wilderness, and there's a burning bush. And God speaks through that burning bush. And God tells Moses to go back to Egypt, where he ran from, and do something for the Lord. Moses then says, okay, I will do this thing for you, but they're going to ask me, Lord, who, who sent you? It's just me, a man here. Who, who told me to do this? Who sent you? Verse 14 says, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, if I was Moses at that point, I, I wouldn't know how to respond. I was looking for a first, middle, last name. I, I don't know what I am means, right? And I was going through this scripture, I am who I am. In English class, we learned about the I am. 
Our brother Kenneth sang it today, the great I am. What does that mean? I am is a state of being. It's a state of existing, meaning that God is existence itself. He has always existed. He will always exist. Even at the end of time, God will always exist. The Bible also teaches us that God doesn't change. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. So not only are we learning that God is eternal, he is and was and is to come, but we're also learning that God never changes. So there's nothing that we can ever do that can change the mind of God. There's nothing that we can ever say. There's no behavior that is so vile that can change the love of God. Amen? So we see Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. I'm just trying to lay the foundation that God always was, and God never changes. Do we all agree for now? God always was, and God never changes. So let's go to Lamentations chapter 3, 22 to 23. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So God is trying to teach us in his word that he is loving and merciful. He is compassionate. There's uh, something that happens to us these days in the age of social media, in the age of cancellation. You can't sneeze the wrong way. It's on social media, you're canceled. You, you sneeze the wrong way, you're canceled. There's no compassion anymore. Nobody looks out for anyone anymore. And God is trying to teach us in these scriptures that he is not like the world. He is not judgmental like the world. Where you may feel judged by others, our God who is eternal and does not change, his mercies for us are new every single morning. They are able to cover that fault that you did yesterday. They're able to cover that place you found yourself in that you promised that you would never go back to, and yet you're still there. He is able to cover every sin, every bit of shame. He is a loving and merciful God. We find out in the scriptures that it was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and they were all in fellowship with each other, amen? They were all in a fellowship of love with each other. And when they created us, we were a byproduct of that love, amen? Meaning that God created us with his love. He created each and every one of us. And his desire is for us to fellowship with him in that love. Let's go to 1 John 4.16. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love 
abides in God and God in him. So that means that we need to abide in this love. And unfortunately, there are so many people in this world that don't even know God's love. We sit here, a few of us sit here, but how many of you have talked about the love of God at your workplace, in your home, during your fellowship, while you were at ShopRite? The love of God that is supposed to abide in us, the love of God that is in our hearts, we are supposed to display that love no matter where we are. There are people that have never seen God's love. They were born in different situations. And us, as children of God, are supposed to be the fragrance that they smell that leads them to the love of God. So we understand the nature of God. We understand that God is love. And we understand that there's nothing that we can do there's nothing that we can say. There's no action that can separate us from God's love. So I have a little story. So I am the last born of five children and I feel like I never um, saw my other siblings go through this issue, but I used to go through this issue a lot when I was growing up. I remember um, so we are called ABNs. I don't know if there's any ABN here, American-born Nigerian. Raise your hand if you're ABN. Mary, raise, raise your hand, baby. Raise your, come on. ABN. <laughs> so American-born Nigerian, right? So we talk like this, right? But when we get home, you know, breakfast is akara with oatmeal, lunch, egusi soup with all the obstacles, Oporoko there, goat meat there. And I remember growing up, like I said, it never happened to my siblings, but we always knew when mommy was cooking. There was always a scent. There was always the smell. Oporoko, from, from the time I, I, I parked the car to getting into my house, you can smell it. Growing up, yes, we ate all the foods, but once we got into school, once we walked into school, another thing that you need to know is that I was the only Nigerian in my class for some time. For a few years, I was the only Nigerian. And parents, please pray for your children because children are mean in this America. They would remind me, when I was in the environment of my home, the smell didn't bother us, we were used to it. But when I went to school, the children would remind me, mm, it smells like fish in here. <laughs> it smells like fish. Who, who is that? Um, so I would try to do certain things, right? I would try to spray some lotions, spray some sprays, go to Victoria's Secret, go to Bath and Body Works. Somehow it was only masking what was there, right? I used to walk to school, and unfortunately I was always late. So in my mind, I thought a mixture of the sweat, a mixture of the wind, and it should wash off whatever impurities of the akara that I just ate, the egg stew that I just ate. And somehow, somehow, I would get to school and I would still smell like fish. I would still have the goat meat smell. And I noticed with my siblings, they didn't have that. And I saw my older brother, the way he would, 
he will close the door. Once the pot was boiling, he will close the door. He will put the uh, plastic zipper around his clothes. He would, and I'm like, why does it, we live in the same house? How is it that I'm the only one smelling like fish? <laughs> that experience taught me something very valuable. Your environment begets a fragrance. The environment that you stay in gives off a fragrance. And the way you respond to that environment also adds to a fragrance. Amen? The way you respond. So my older siblings, there was still the environment. We were in the same environment, but there was a response that they gave that was different from mine. And because of that, they were not affected. Amen? Your environment impacts how you smell. Your environment impacts your fragrance, the fragrance of your life. I wanna use these last 10 minutes to ask you, what environment are you finding yourself in? Is it an environment of, I need to keep up with what's, what's current. I need to keep up with the Joneses. I need to figure out what's going on. I need to watch all the Super Bowl commercials so at work, I know when to laugh. I know what to say. I need to keep up with culture. Some of you have never even experienced the love of God, and you're giving off a fragrance of insecurity. You don't know that there's a better way than the life that you're currently living. You are in and out of sin. You are in and out of depression. You are in and out of anxiety. You are in and out of addiction. And it is a cycle that you cannot seem to get out of. It is a never-ending loop of disappointment in yourself, feeling ashamed in yourself and your actions. I want us to turn to Matthew chapter eight, from one to three. This is a story of Jesus and how he healed a leper. And we know in Jesus' ministry that he healed so many people, but Matthew wanted to shine a light on this leper. It says, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, I want to speak to this story. So this story of the leper is just three verses, but it is such a powerful demonstration of God's nature and God's love. I was doing some studying, and I saw how lepers are treated. If you look at the book of Leviticus, they're not even allowed in the city gates. They're not even allowed to roam around like other people. They have to stay outside the gates. They have to wear tattered clothes. And if someone gets close to them, they have to yell, unclean. I'm unclean, don't touch me. Don't, don't look at me, don't, don't even, I'm unclean. That was their identity for their whole life of being a leper. Go and look at Leviticus if you have time. 
This was the portion of every leper. While you may not have leprosy, you may have insecurity. You may be struggling with addiction. You may have gone through a traumatic time in your life that you cannot get over. You may not even be saved. And I wanna speak to those people specifically. Those people who are dealing with any form of addiction, depression, anxiety, hurt. I want you to know that in this same story, this leper could have chosen to stay in his environment and continued with the fragrance of unclean. He could have stayed because he's supposed to be outside in the city gates. The Bible actually commanded that in Leviticus, right? But he knew that there was a savior that could change his situation. And instead of staying in, in the mire that he was in, he chose to respond to his environment by going to the only one that could save him, the only one that could cleanse him and the only one that could make him whole, and that's Jesus. He went to Jesus and he knelt down. Some, some passages say he bowed down. It means he humbled himself. God doesn't care who you pretend to be on Sunday. He doesn't care how nice you dress up. He doesn't care how well you speak. He looks at the innermost part of your heart and he sees everything. The things you don't want anyone else to know about you, the things you don't want anyone else to see in you, he sees that. And that leper made a decision. He made a decision to go to where Jesus was against his better judgment and say, Lord, if you are willing, cleanse me. And Jesus said, I am willing. So with these few minutes, I just want to say that there are some of you here or some of you watching online and you have been feeling unclean, you have been feeling ashamed, dealing with sexual identity issues. These are things that we don't always talk about and we don't always hear about. I was listening to a, a message on YouTube and you would be very surprised with what some of our youths are dealing with today. Sexual identity crisis. I was in the children's ministry a few weeks ago and one of the children said, my teacher told me it's okay if I'm a girl. I can be a girl if I want to. These children are dealing with social media, age of cancellation, there is so much. And there are so many people dealing with their own shame, dealing with their own burdens, their own addiction. Today I wanna to talk to those people and I wanna tell you that Jesus is willing Jesus is willing. Go out of that environment of shame. Leave the environment of addiction. Leave the environment of hurt and pain. And go to Jesus and say, if you are willing, I know you can make me whole. He is the only one that can make us whole. He is the only one that can take that pain one thing that I was looking at when I searched the scriptures was the power that Jesus had and how he humbled himself to become human form and died for our sins. And a lot of people hear that and it's like, oh, Jesus, you came from heaven to earth. It's, it's not just that. 
He felt the same way we felt. When that nail pierced his hand, he felt every single pound of flesh crushed. And he did that as a display. Romans 5.8, if you guys have it. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he came down, he took on human form, and he felt the same way we felt. All of our infirmities, all of our sickness, all of our diseases, all of our afflictions, everything we struggle with, all of our insecurities, he took it and he nailed it to the cross. And the beautiful part is it doesn't just stop there. He continues to intercede for us. So when the devil comes to accuse you, it's like, no. I died for them already. When the devil now comes and tells you, you did that thing yesterday, you told God you weren't going to do that and you still went ahead and did that. He comes and then intercedes on your behalf and says, no, I paid the price already. This has already been paid for. Some of you have already heard this message and you're not walking in the fullness of that love. And some of you have never ever heard this message before. And I want to tell you, the same way the leper was saying unclean his whole life, the same way you battle with sin and addiction, pornography and all the things that weigh you down, Jesus wants to take that from you. He said he is willing. He said he is willing. Reach out to him. Reach out to him because he is willing. In Jesus' name, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, because it's not by our own strength. It's not by our own muscle. It is not by our own that we can do this. You are eternal, and you had fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You want us to come into that fellowship with you. And the only way is for us to believe that you love us, that you died for our sins, and that you continue to intercede on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for this word. I pray, Lord, that whoever this was meant to touch, that it has touched them, in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, because from now, till for, from today, we will exhibit the fragrance. We will no longer have a fragrance of sin. We will no longer have a fragrance of depression. We will no longer have the fragrance of shame, but we will rise up and have a fragrance of freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. I thank God for one Holy Spirit. The message that Ephi just shared is perfectly in line with what God instructed me to share with you all today. <clears throat> as, as we prepared, Ife and I did not discuss what we would be preparing. We didn't talk to each other, you know, this is the main topic. You deal with this, I talk about this, no. And so, 
let it be, let it be proof to you that despite Ifi, despite myself, the Holy Spirit has a message for someone here today. And I pray that you will be receptive to it. So without skipping a beat, I want to go to Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 32. Rather, to, from 31 to 34. This is in the uh, New Living Translation. It says, What shall separate, or what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? So you see in this scripture that despite my sin, despite my past, God loved me enough to give, him, give me, give us his most prized possession, his son, Jesus Christ. His most precious gift. So if God in my sin was willing to give his most precious gift, would not spare his own son, then there's no blessing too, too valuable that he won't give those that he loves. You know? If, if it is a matter of healing, joy, peace, prosperity, these things, when you consider the, the comparison, Jesus Christ is supreme. So if he gave us Jesus Christ when we were in our sin, what is it to him to give us all these other things? I want us to keep that comparison in our minds. You know, if we talked about shame, guilt, there are so many people who are dealing with guilt, and because of that, they do not feel that they are worthy to receive the love of Christ. That they are worthy to receive the blessings that come with the relationship in him. And today, I want to prove that wrong mindset wrong. Completely wrong. The love of Christ supersedes all that stuff. Let's look at um, continuing, continuing on verse 33. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. We are in right standing with Christ. When you make a decision to come and accept the love of Jesus Christ, automatically you are made in right standing with him. It's not a matter of achieving certain goals or behaving a certain way or putting down certain things. No, once you accept the love of Christ, Personally, you say, and you make a determination that I will, now, I will now have a relationship with Jesus. He has already justified you. He has made you righteous. We are in right standing with him. Verse 34. Who then will condemn us? No one. 
For Christ died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Other translations will say, interceding for us. We have to understand this. We have to understand that when we come to God, we are truly justified. We are justified through Christ. We're not justified by our actions. We're not justified by correcting our past mistakes. You know? Now, when you consider these, these two points, you consider these two points that despite my sin, despite my past, God gave his most prized possession, his most precious gift, and therefore, all the other stuff is nothing to him to give to us freely. And the second point that no one can accuse us because God justifies us. Then the main question is when you look at the, the following verses, uh, if we continue 35 through 39, who can separate us from the love of God? I'll read it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded. All of us here must be persuaded. We must be persuaded. We, we must be sure to our core. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing can separate us from God's love. I'll say it again. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Not our past, not what you feel, the guilt, not the shame. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Yet, we sometimes separate ourselves from God's love. In the beginning, Adam and his wife enjoyed fellowship with God. We know in the book of Genesis, um, God would come down in the cool of the day and just hang out. You know, they, they would fellowship with each other. But when they sinned, what happened? They hid from God. Do you know that they inadvertently taught Satan man's reaction to guilt and shame? Which is what? A self-induced separation from God. The scriptures I've already, I've already shared before have shown us that nothing can separate us from love of God. But because of our guilt, we separate ourselves. We isolate, isolate ourselves. And so because of this, the devil tries to keep us bound by drowning us in the feeling of guilt. He entices us to sin, and once you've sinned, he then constantly accuses you so, you so that you are bound by that guilt. In fact, in Revelations 12.10, 
they have given him the name accuser of the brethren. He constantly accuses us before God, but we know that no one can bring a charge against God's elect. Why? Because of the scripture we read before. Verse 33 and 34, those who are in Christ, uh, um, who dares accuses us whom God has chosen for his own? This is Romans 8, 33. No one. So we know that even though the enemy comes and starts accusing us to God, it bounces off God's ears because he looks at you and says, this one is justified. Oh, I've justified her. Oh, him? Yeah, I justified him. Devil, get out of my face. I mean, the devil can be yapping, yapping, yapping. He's like, you're wasting your time. I've justified him. Oh, yeah, him. I justified him. You know? And so now the enemy will now turn around and start coming to anyone who has a listening ear and start accusing you, accusing you. Remember what you did. You think you're good now. Oh, you think you're righteous. Look at what happened in the past. You did this. You did this. You know? And what tends to happen is for some, they'll start to, to remember, take their focus off of Jesus, off of his love, and they start focusing on their past, their past mistakes, their guilt. I want to spend a little bit of time really hammering down on this thing of guilt. I believe that if we have a good understanding of it, it will further help us to overcome it. And I believe that there's someone, even if it's just one person here, I pray that God is speaking to you, that God is speaking to you. For many believers, guilt is a deep-rooted issue. It causes some to, um, you know, in prayer, you'll, you'll ask for forgiveness every time you pray because deep-seated in your heart, there's this feeling of guilt. Guilt begins when someone receives knowledge that they have committed an offense, when they have made a mistake. And when that mistake happens, then remorse develops. And I want to um, bring an example uh, based on one of the disciples. Um, when Jesus was arrested in his final hour, Peter, um, follows somewhat, you know, behind. And some people recognize him and say, hey, aren't you one of the 12? And he's like, no, I don't know this guy. And he does so three times. Let's look at um, uh, this scripture, Matthew chapter 26, verse 75. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him before the rooster crows you will deny me three times so he went out and wept bitterly he wept bitterly he experienced the guilt of what he did now when someone comes to this realization that they've committed an offense most people's reaction will be one of two things. I want to I look at it from a psychological perspective for a minute. Usually, a person's reaction is based on what is in their heart. 
is there, do they have a heart of humility or is it a heart of pride? Based on what a person has in their heart, it will determine their reaction to this guilt. With a heart of humility, there will be remorse. With a broken and contrite heart, they will seek forgiveness and reconciliation. I believe that we all know the story of David. David um, looked upon Bathsheba as she was bathing on a rooftop and lusted after her. And out of that lust, he got her husband killed in war and then took, her, took Bathsheba as his own, even though he had hundreds of wives and concubines already. And then I believe the prophet Nathan came to him and said, hey, this and this is what you did. And so David came to the realization of his offense. It's amazing. The whole time he didn't know that he did something wrong. But he came to that realization of his offense. And with a broken and contrite heart, he humbled himself before the Lord. He humbled himself before the Lord, asking forgiveness. Now, for someone with a heart of pride, the reaction is different. When someone experiences guilt, but in their heart, there's, a, there, there's pride. What tends to happen is they develop a sense of unforgiveness towards themselves. Unforgiveness. And this, this unforgiveness, is, it, it's um, displayed as a type of like penance. They have to punish themselves. You know, self-punishment. Whether it's emotional or mental, they beat themselves up. And um, um, somehow they feel that by, by self-punishing, um, it will right the wrong, you know? Oftentimes, this unforgiveness towards yourself leads to self-destructive behaviors. Self-destructive behaviors. And um, this can be in the form of isolation from loved ones, uh, careless decision-making, going out, you know, doing hard drugs, um, engaging in alcoholism, just, just any kind of thing. And the, the, the worst of these self-destructive behaviors is destroying your life, taking your own life. And we see this in another disciple. We all know him. His name is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, um, during the Last Supper, um, we know that uh, uh, he leaves the supper early because he will betray Jesus. He goes to the, the chief priest, uh, the, the officers there, and tells them, the person who I kiss is the one who you all should arrest. So anyway, again, they arrest, they arrest Jesus, and when he sees what he did, Guilt comes upon him. Now let's look at his reaction. Let's look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 3 to 5. And it says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned, by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? 
You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. You see his reaction. Two people who had sinned against Jesus. One of them, um, Peter, the other one, Judas. Now, one thing I want to point out here is that pride has a way of blinding you to the compassions of Christ. And in that pride, guilt. Guilt has a way of blinding you to his love. You see, in this same verse, Judas, it says, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned. Let's stop there. Who told Judas that he was condemned? I read verses before, I read verses after. No one told Judas that he was condemned. Judas, because of his guilt, he saw himself as condemned. And because of seeing himself as condemned, he did not, after spending all that time with Jesus during his ministry, knowing the love of Jesus, that guilt caused him to be blinded to the love of Christ. And as a result, what did he do? He took his own life. The ultimate self-punishment, self-destructive behavior. Peter denied Jesus when Jesus needed his support the most. Upon realizing his error, he wept bitterly in remorse. We read that scripture. But later, Jesus restores Peter. Jesus restores Peter. Let's look at that. John chapter 21, verse 15 to 19. So when they had eaten breakfast, isn't it interesting? Breakfast is in the morning. You know, it, it signifies new beginnings. You know, um, Jesus had, had resurrected, had been seen by so many people and was having breakfast with his disciples, a new beginning, you know, and in this new beginning, he is about to restore Peter. Whereas the last supper is at nighttime, you know, it's kind of signifying the ending, you know, but we praise God because Jesus Christ did not end there. He did not end in death. He rose again. And we give God all the praise for that. So uh, John chapter 21, 15 to 19. So when he had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. I want to stop there. Jesus didn't bring up that you, he denied me, you know. He didn't say, Peter, do you still deny me? His question shows what was of utmost importance to him. Relationship. Your love. Your desire for him. Oneness with him. He didn't say, Peter, have you changed your mind about uh, what you said the other night? He said, Peter, do you love me? And that's what, that's what he desires from all of us, from each and every one of us, our love. He desires our heart. 
It's not about uh, being a stand-up citizen, being walking in line, obeying all the rules. He desires a relationship with each of us. And he continues this. He asks this same question three times. And Peter responds uh, three times. And I believe that these three times are in correlation with the three times that Peter had denied him. And from that, it shows me that no idle word is, is of, you know, no value in the spiritual realm. Um, we must give account for the things that we say. Peter said that, you know, he denied Christ three times. And Jesus Christ asked the same question three times. There is value in your words. Be careful in how you use your words. If I skip down to verse 18, it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So we see here that Peter was restored. He sinned against Jesus when Jesus needed his support the most. But Peter was restored. Jesus would have restored Judas had Judas remained alive. Believe it or not. Jesus would have restored Judas Iscariot had he remained alive. Judas saw himself as condemned. Nobody told him that he was condemned. Now, I want to prove this to you. This was actually alluded to during the Last Supper. In the Last Supper, Jesus is with the 12. They're eating. And he then reveals that someone will betray him. Someone will betray him. And um, let's look at that scripture. John chapter 13, verse 21 to 26. It says, okay, I'll go ahead and read. John 13, 21 to 26. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, now get this, this is, this is profound. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So let's take a step back. If Jesus was not going to stop Judas from betraying him, why did, you, why did Jesus even mention it? Why did he even bring it up? when he was seated with the 12? Why did he even say uh, um, that somebody was going to, to 
betray him if he wasn't going to do anything about it. He could have answered and said, John, you know who's going to betray me? It's him, Judas. Judas is going to betray me. And then the Bible says that, the, the, that Satan entered Judas and Judas left. Jesus could have said, hey, the rest of you 11, go after him, catch him. But Jesus did not. He didn't do anything. So, so, then, so then why in the first place did he mention to the 12 as they were sitting there that one of you will betray me? He says in verse 26 that it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Um, this, is, this is profound because when I looked at it, if you look earlier in, in the Last Supper, Jesus um, takes the bread and he breaks it, you know. Luke chapter twenty-two, nineteen. he said, and he took the bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So now he now takes this piece of bread, dips it and gives it to Judas. What is he saying? That piece of bread is God's body broken in my place. That piece of bread dipped was his death and dissension into hell in my place. He takes the bread up as, his, as he raises up in newness of life, overcoming the powers of death and hell with, new, with, with victory. And now he takes that piece of bread and gives it to Judas. That piece of bread that he was giving to Judas was, was a display. It was a display of his, of his unexplainable love. I don't know if you all get my point here. That was a display of his unexplainable love. I don't know. Jesus, Jesus can you imagine it? Jesus is looking upon the accomplice to his killers. And he's saying, by this gesture, he's saying, I love you. I want to restore you. I want to show you mercy. My mercy is unchanging. It is new every morning. That is love. I mean, that is love. You know that this person is an accomplice to your killers. And still, you're looking him in the eyes and saying, I love you. That's the Jesus we serve. That is the Jesus who wants to have a relationship with you. That's why I'm here today telling you, if you are dealing with guilt, don't look at that guilt. Don't look at your past. Forget about that thing. When you are in Christ, you are new. He has made you a new creation. The Bible says that old things have truly passed away. They have. You have to get that in your mind, in your heart. It has to be real with you. So that you can do what? Embrace his love and compassion. You know, I love this uh, song. Ify sang a song, so I'm going to sing a song too. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercy is never come to an end. There are new every morning. New every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. This, this song is based on Lamentations 3, verse 22 to 23. And it is real. It is real. His love is new every morning. Every morning. It is new. So let me ask a question. Why waste it? Every morning, his love is new. His mercy is new. Why waste it? Focusing on past guilt. Embrace his love. There, there are some of you out there who um, may, may really struggle with embracing the love of Christ. Um, there is a scripture that, uh, rather a prayer, that I think would be very beneficial um, in praying on a daily basis. And it's from 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. This is my last scripture. It says, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Let this be your daily prayer. Father, direct or incline my heart to your love. Father, direct my heart to your love. Pray this on a daily basis on a daily basis, so that when you come into focus and, and, and the love of Christ is your only focus, then the enemy does not have the ability to be bombarding your thoughts, accusing you, accusing you, accusing you. Why? Because you have shielded your heart with the love of Christ. I pray that this will bless you all. In Jesus' name, amen.